Hi, I'm Devin Scott. I'm Will Ross. I'm a cinematographer and colorist. Will's an editor and sound designer. A quick content warning. This episode does include discussions of violent content, including sexual violence. On today's episode, we're talking with avant-garde director Paige Smith about the use of reflexive filmmaking in Satoshi Kon's anime horror movie, Perfect Blue. Welcome to Film Formally. We're here with Paige Smith today. Paige Smith is a short film filmmaker as well as our associate producer. Hi, Paige. Hi. So you wanted to talk about Perfect Blue and how it uses reflexive cinema to explore the way culture views or looks at women. And that has some resonance with your own work, right? Yeah, it's a topic and theme I've explored a lot in my last... uh, few films and media art installations what kind of media art installations and films are those like what can give us a general sense of what you put on the screen sure my most relevant film to this topic is my 2018 film watching us which is a an experimental short film that's about eight minutes long it is a film that has just four shots in it is the easiest way to explain it and they're four lateral dolly shots from the perspective of outside an apartment window watching two women uh, make love and the scenes are different to represent the effects that this watching has on these women a lot of my films explore that kind of uh, question of voyeurism and surveillance and ways of society and how they affect women and particularly queer women Right. So can you explain what that is, what reflexivity in cinema or reflexive cinema is and give a couple examples, maybe? I think reflexive cinema or just reflexive art making can be defined in a lot of different ways. So I guess I'll just use my personal definition. When I use that word, what I'm trying to say is a technique that makes the viewer aware that they are watching a film in this case. One of my film professors introduced me to this idea of the proscenium arch. And it's a term that comes from theater, I believe. And the proscenium arch is literally the arch that um, frames the traditional sort of theater stage. And the term proscenium arch now, from my understanding, means to be aware that you're watching a theater play, to be aware of the framing of the presentation. So... That's what I'm trying to do a lot of the time is point to that proscenium arch, you know, in the one of my films. Well, this is embarrassing, but <laughs> in one of my films, I accidentally left in the camera battery chargers in one of the shots. And I actually didn't notice until I showed it to some people and they pointed it out. And I just said, oh, I'm just pointing at the proscenium arch. <laughs> <laughs> Who among us hasn't taken credit for an accident? Exactly. <laughs> And I guess the the kind of second step would be like, they're aware of it. And then that question, well, now that I'm aware of it, what does that mean? Yeah, it, it's art that's commentating on its own tools and in very existence to, uh, to create new meaning, which I think very much applies to Perfect Blue. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that definition. Yeah. So with that, let's, let's jump into Perfect Blue. Devin, do you want to sort of walk us through a little bit? the basics of what perfect blue is 
Yeah, Perfect Blue is Satoshi Kon's 1997 film about a young celebrity um, who uh, wants to transition from being a Japanese pop idol to being a serious actress. And while undergoing this transition, uh, she essentially rubs cer- uh, certain members of her fan community the wrong way. <laughs> and as a result, um, becomes a victim of a horrific stalker who begins murdering people around her and gaslighting her into thinking that she may be the culprit by impersonating her online. Mm-hmm. And throughout this, the lines between the reality within the protagonist's world and the reality within the acting she is engaging in, the TV show she acts in, um, those lines begin to blur. And this blurring of these two kind of meta-realities, I think, really serves to um, implicate the audience in our own imposition of a narrative and identity on this person, because everyone who isn't her, essentially, um, wants her to conform to some identity or another that is not her own, at least not fully her own, while she attempts to uh, carve out her own identity. And there's some question throughout the film as to what exactly her identity is. She starts to question it herself, and I think that becomes a major factor. But I, you, you, I think that sum up does a good job of already touching on why reflexive ideas of making the audience aware that they're watching a film is such a natural choice for Perfect Blue. Instantly, when I'm even saying that, what comes to mind is the characters on screen aren't real people. They aren't even flesh and blood people pretending to be real people. They're animated. And one of the things I really like about the film is that it still doesn't let you off the hook in that respect because there's one scene where it cuts to a billboard showing the main character, Mima, and... A couple of scenes later, there's a similar close-up of... It's not a billboard. It's a magazine cover, I think. No, it's a billboard. It is a billboard? But it has a anime character in a really different art style than what Perfect Blue is. Perfect Blue is generally quite observant to the real proportions of people. There's there's obviously stylizations in it, but it's it's much more restrained and tends much towards uh, an ideal of realism. And this billboard of an anime character has the massive eyes, very angular, geometrically exaggerated features, uh, bright pink hair. And so the film is in that moment reminding you that even the nature of the characters that you're watching and their identity is mediated just by the art style. So there's all these levels that it refuses to let you off the hook. At the start, it doesn't do that much to make you constantly aware of the film you're watching and of its structure and of its own making. Now, that really, I think, begins at around the midway part during the, I would say, the first of the film's two sexual assault scenes. Um, this one taking place mm-hmm. within the fictional universe of the TV show within this film. Yeah, the staged rape scene, I say, is the the big turning point for increased amount of reflexive techniques but at the beginning there is they're laying the ground for it for sure you know because she's an actress and a singer we're kind of seeing behind the scenes in general but also there's just a prevalence of televisions cameras you know everywhere she looks she is still being watched and even at the very beginning 
there's this wonderful shot of who we will later find out to be the stalker. And he's at her last concert before she announces she is going to become an actress. And he holds up his hand and we're seeing the shot from the, the stalker's POV and he holds up his hand and then she's up on stage and it looks like he's holding a little figurine of her, or a little doll. I, I, I would say that that shot um, really to me called attention to the parallels between that character and us as an audience. Yes. That character is viewing the same person we are um, essentially from the same vantage point. And obviously this is, you know, the insane stalker that uh, instigates all the conflict in this film, drawing parallels between the audience and the stalker, like they do at the very, very, at his very introduction um, is a pretty confrontational thing to do. Yeah, totally. And even just the slight, small little details of she's up on a stage and, and he's below and he's got, he's almost like holding her up as, as like a little godly figure, you know, he's looking up at her and holding her up like towards the sky. It kind of feels like he's literally putting her on a pedestal and, and not seeing her as anything more than just her public persona. Yeah. He's also making his own hand the stage in that moment, right? He's trying to take personal possession of her image and how he feels she should be. Totally. Yeah. It's the first big gesture of ownership. Yes, totally. A little less than halfway through perfect blue comes the turning point, I think. And I think, I think it's a pretty clear turning point, which is she is a bit stuck in her career. She's no longer a pop idol. And her career as a serious actor is stalling a bit. And so she and her manager end up turning to the writer of this television series that she's on and saying, hey, she's leaving behind her pop idol image. She wants to be a serious actor. So as a result, the writer of the show feels freed up to use her character however he wants. And he ends up writing her into a rape scene where her character is on a stage and is dancing and she gets knocked over by one of the characters who's watching her within the TV series. It looks like it's supposed to be like a, um, like a, maybe not a stripping location, but the, the setting is kind of like either she's like an erotic dancer or a stripper. Yeah. Something, something to that effect. And So within the show, she gets knocked down and raped and the scene is just absolutely horrifying to watch. And then suddenly it just stops dead. They call cut and they change the camera angles and the music stops, all the shouting stops, all these uncomfortable leering close-ups of the people who are watching her be raped come to a close. She's interacting in quite a friendly voice with the man who is playing her rapist and then it resumes again and it feels completely real and horrifying again it's the most uncomfortable scene in the movie for me by a decent margin even though there's a scene later on where she is actually under threat of rape and i think the reason it's so uncomfortable for me is because it's you can feel her actually being traumatized by this fake rape and it just creates all these really disturbing implications for how art is made and how and what people and especially women are put through in order to make art. I don't know, especially I think as a filmmaker, it's it's a it's a particularly disturbing scene for me. 
I, I would agree that it's a scene that um, that disturbed me, disturbs me most while I was watching it. And I think a big reason is um, if you know how you're supposed to process something, then even something really horrific is actually easier to deal with, right? If you're like, okay, this is bad, <laughs> you can compartmentalize that. But in this case, um, I think there's a lot going on here that's um, and the scene I think is a highly ambivalent one because at, at the same time, she's having to put herself through something I think that the filmmakers clearly think is horrific. Um, but it's also an expression on her part of, um, you know, essentially rebelling against her, the previous image that she had kind of foisted on her and wanted to get away from, um, and at the same time, the film doesn't really telegraph to us whether the pain she is exhibiting in this scene is her acting or is actually her. And it, I think that line is intentionally blurred to make it all the more horrific. I don't know if this is the right word, but like it is making us feel guilty for watching it. You know, that that's how I feel watching it is this feeling of on a bunch of levels, like one, okay, like content like this is made, you know, this is a fictional obviously animated film but like rape scenes are made all the time and they're made so they can be watched so there's like this guilty like you know and rape scenes are fake i would always hope but it, it leaves a little bit of blood on our hands it feels like when you see the effects this has on mima as an actress yeah it's one thing that i think makes it even yeah more disturbing is that it's clear that or it's heavily implied that the show is not some serious treatise on the subject. It's exploiting that. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if I'm too out there in saying this, but like, it doesn't feel like it really is a fake rape scene. Like it feels like it has the same effects in a lot of ways that me, but actually experiencing a rape would have, you know, in the scene, we, have a moment when the fake rape is happening or so we, we don't know exactly, but we get a close up of Mima's face and it it's all these different angles and her eyes are kind of glassed over and she's kind of looks like dead a little bit. Like, like oh, the way my understanding, a lot of victims have to go to that state when, when they're being assaulted like this because they have to disassociate or the, or it's going to be way too much mentally to handle. So it's kind of feels like she's disassociating from her body. One of her managers is worried. Her only kind of woman in her life that's looking out for her, Rumi, is worried about her doing this scene. And Mima says to Rumi, like, I'm not really being raped, right? Like it's pretend. And then after the scene, you know, she's pretending to be fine in front of her managers and her male manager even like takes her out for dinner for like doing a good job, which is really creepy. She comes home and she's like screaming and angry and super upset. And she's saying to herself, like, of course, I didn't want to do this. Of course, I wanted to say no. Clearly traumatized. by yeah. the experience. So it's it's just I don't know. I think it really mirrors the real and the and the staged. Yeah. And the scene ends with her imagining that the people on the sidelines who are cheering, pretending to cheer because they're all extras in the TV series, but pretending to cheer for her performed rape are, in fact, her audience when she a, was a pop idol and she imagines herself 
receiving their cheers with a smile in her old pop idol uniform. Mm-hmm. And it's the first moment when a clear identity dissociation starts taking place because that that notion that she's better off in her old persona or that she's trapped between these different identities as an serious quote-unquote serious actor as a pop idol and as whatever Mima is when she's not being filmed or scrutinized or why or listened to which might be never which is a scary thought well i think at the beginning of the film it kind of sets that up mima is going to the grocery store and feeding her fish i think that's real mima she i think she comes home and she finds her fish have died yeah after after the rape scene the fish have died yeah but all all of this is to say that it's it's a these things aren't reflexive in and of themselves but i think they do point to a really important turn in her characterization that sets sets up the film for re- the, when it starts getting really bonkers within its re- with its reflexivity, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. My mom is so funny. She doesn't understand what a podcast is. I'm trying to get her to listen to the first few episodes, and she's saying, "Need help? I'm getting sound, but no picture." <laughs> <laughs> One thing I would point is that you know Devin gave a great kind of rundown of the basics of the film at the beginning, but. I would say that, you know, that kind of back half of his explanation is very debatable because after this uh, pretend rape scene happens, it's not very clear to the audience what is a delusion and what is not, what is real, what is not in Mima's mind. So, you know, I'd say Devin gave the most like kind of common reading of the film, but there definitely yeah, I, is. I give the, I give the, like the, the ending of psycho reading. Yeah. Right? You Where know, everything is explained in like this guy did this. He was crazy. He thought he was his mom. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, I think that the film, uh, the film has a very coherent concrete reading. Mm-hmm. Right. But I, I think that it's deliberately leaves us a lot of other avenues for interpretation completely open. And it, and it's one thing that was not kind of mentioned in that is is what Will was talking about. Mima's. I think uh, we can call it Mima's idol version, how Mima starts seeing a second version of herself. She starts seeing her alter ego. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I kind of, uh, I, I, my kind of personal reading was that it was a manifestation of her um, second guessing herself <laughs> about her career choices. And that sounds really overly concrete, but I think that it does speak to, it's almost the image that she's running away from, that she has been told by the world she needs to maintain to survive. And it's almost like it feels like in a lot of ways, all the fans we hear from within the film, they don't like the new Mima. They want Mima to go be an idol again. They like the old version. So it it kind of feels like that that is the version everyone wants her to be, you know, and this kind of innocent virgin like symbol of what Japanese idols often have to represent and what she wants to be or what she is which is you know a woman that has trauma and experiences and is an adult you know yeah that's that the concrete reading of mima's alter ego is is definitely there and it's at least partly what she sees but the film's narrative starts to throw into question how much of that was her own personal delusion because the big one of the big twists towards the end is that one of her managers, Rumi, 
who didn't want her to move away from her pop idol image and used to be an aspiring pop idol herself, is dressed up as Mima, is trying to guide Mima's career, winds up trying to murder Mima. And, and also has like made her apartment look the exact same as Mima's apartment. Yeah, yeah. and has apparently murdered all these people who she thought was were hurting Mima's image. You know, her other manager, this photographer who shot her nude, uh, the writer who wrote the rape scene for her. All these murders become the focal point of the second half of the film. And it looks like Mima was the one who committed them. And we even see Mima committing one of them. But towards the end of the film, the big reveal is, oh, her stalker has been killing and her manager has been killing. And what we've been seeing when we see Mima within these scenes is just their self image of themselves as Mima committing these crimes. We're getting into my, my absolute favorite thing about this film as a reflexive work, which is that it takes advantage of the idea of what's often called puzzle cinema movies that invite you to figure out what exactly they are and what's happening within them. They're, explicit and implicit plot points and tie it all together and solve it. And Perfect Blue is a work that presents itself as puzzle cinema, but is unsolvable fundamentally. You have all these different possible outcomes. One reading is, okay, Mima didn't kill anyone. That's the movie. Another one is, oh, Mima was a murderer. Yeah. Number three possibility is the character who she's playing in a TV show is in fact a real person and that person has imagined themselves to be a former pop idol who is now an actor playing a character on a tv show the last possibility quote unquote last is that none of the above is true whoever this mima person is is too beyond repair for us to make sense of her from the information we're given in the film and all these things exist in consistent conflict with each other during and after you watch the movie yeah, I, I have a reading. <laughs> it's, it's just a bunch of pictures uh, arranged in a, in a in a series that look like people. Um, no, I, <laughs> they are in fact drawn. <laughs> I, I do think it's worth noting that the film, though, was an initially intended to be live action. Yes, Did you know this, um, and uh, I think that one of the interesting side effects of it ending ending up being an animated or hand drawn, especially animated film is that um, it does um, remove everything a little bit from kind of um, uh, specific, you know, flesh and blood representations. I totally Um, agree. But to what end? Well, I think it's really important that it does that. For example, when we were talking about the pretend rape scene and how it um, really depicts the actual effects this kind of filming can have on actresses, particularly, I think... The only reason that film or that scene works, I think, is because it's animated. I don't think this film would work in any other form because I don't think it could really call to question what are the ramifications? Uh, Is it okay to film rape scenes like this? Is it okay to do all this and then actually put a real live woman in that situation? (laughs) I think I would call a little bullshit on that, you know, and I. It at least avoids it kind of deeks the inevitable ethical questions that it would you know face yeah there is a live action perfect blue film ah it came out in 2002 i haven't seen it no Uh oh that's not directed by it's i uh no it's not directed by cone very interesting one technique that really stood out to me throughout the film was 
the imagery of eyes. So in general, there are quite a few shots of eyes, kind of like the shots I described earlier, um, Mima disassociating and those dead eyes. But the thing I want to focus on is the deaths throughout the film and how the specifically the three, no, four, I think all four men are killed this way where they, there's kind of like this ice pick and it's the weapon that is used on all these men, I believe. And the ice pick is stabbed into these men's eyes, or at least we see something has been stabbed into their eyes and they're bleeding from them. And I think that that is just another way to point to like the power of eyes, the power of watching, the power of, of our ability to surveil women that notion of attacking the eye goes back to like it goes back to Bunuel's yes and Shen Andalou I was and, gonna and, say and Greek philosophy yeah <laughs> <laughs> we're putting a razor to the eye guys <laughs> no it's true it it it's an old trick but it works I, I do think it actually like you know how I mentioned Greek Greek myth sorry not Greek mythology um, you I said actually philosophy, do that this, so you'll have to splice that one in there. Okay, let me just get Oops. a clean mythology. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like in Greek, myth, Greek mythology. There you go, Will <laughs> or you know, whoever adds this. Um, the um, but no, I actually think that um, that, that the whole idea of blindness as punishment instantly reminded me of uh, Oedipus, who blinds himself. He gets the shame and horror of what he's done. Yeah. I think that right. the idea of blinding someone as almost a punishment for some sin or another is as old as the idea of like prophets and sin themselves. Mm-hmm. So it almost seems to be this kind of someone's idea of punishment based on what you've seen, right? These people have all gazed at Mima. And as a result, for the for that sin, they're being punished by being blinded. Just while we're talking about Oedipus, I'm, I'm jumping around a little bit, but I wanted to talk about a little bit about the movies. I'm not a, an expert in psychoanalytic theory, but I think the fact that the movie is a series of clues and information that can never give you a complete picture of reality is something that a psychoanalyst or (laughs) a theoretician would have a total field day with because Derrida had this idea that meaning in a text of words can never be fully expressed through those words. You know, that meaning is always deferred is the word. You defer meaning to the next word that will glance further towards meaning and, but not fully realize it and will therefore defer to the next word. And you always need more words in order to try to approach meaning, but you never quite get there. And another psychoanalytic theorist, uh, Lacan, has an idea of the chain of signification that you present another piece of information that signifies some idea or meaning or reality, but the chain is never complete. And I think Perfect Blue is just this perfect example of depicting that deferred meaning and this broken chain of signification where all the links are pulled to their breaking point and just scatter everywhere. And that could not be done in a movie that doesn't address directly the audience's attempts to understand what they're watching. It has to be personal. And I I don't think you can do that 
without getting reflexive and acknowledging the audience's own relationship to the text that they're watching. I think it's also just the reflexive nature calls to question the formation of meaning itself. Yeah. It calls us to question that there is a singular meaning and that instead there is this deferral process like you're describing. Yeah. I took a Greek mythology class when I was 20. <laughs> <laughs> we remembered small things from them. Like that Oedipus guy who took his eyes out. You gotta like, you know, we gotta get Foucault in here and then I'll and then I'll feel like a real university student. Yeah, we should try to get Foucault on the podcast. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, let's, get the ne- let, let's get Zizek, the next best one. Um, there's one scene <laughs> that I... Films. Another scene that really uses reflexive techniques to a powerful effect is the scene that we kind of talked about already a little bit is um, when Mima kills the photographer. And we talked about this, the idea of stabbing the eyes and his genitals, but also she actually stabs his hands as well. I really love this scene. It's really freaking creepy. It starts with the photographer in his apartment and we see a pizza man is delivering something. And the pizza man actually doesn't have any sort of drawing or line on his face but it doesn't seem that odd because that's happened a few times throughout the film where background characters don't have fully rendered faces the pizza man pulls out this ice pick i described stabs the photographer in the eye and then we get into this crazy fast like kind of like music and uh and then we go into this spree of like violent messy killing the pizza man is kind of taking the ice pick above his head and stabbing the photographer and then suddenly we cut to a new angle and now that figure that was the pizza man is now mima and mima is now stabbing the photographer over and over again and the way it's staged is so effective and creepy and really like confuses you as a viewer and i love it so we don't actually see the photographer too much we mainly are seeing the image of Mima with the ice pick and the stabbing action and she's up against a wall and there's a projection of her, the photographs that this photographer took of her being projected onto her body and it's so creepy seeing these kind of like provocative nude photographs it's mainly close-ups of her face but you know she's looking at the camera kind of seductively and then her killing the photographer that took these photos and we see the blood splattering from the photographer onto the wall that is being projected on and again it's just that like awareness of the actual medium that this is being watched on you know all of this is cut really quickly really fast lots of angles back and forth and lots of close-ups of her and then intercut with the naked body photos that the photographer took. I think it's one of the most effective scenes in its use of reflexive techniques to really get across like, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly, but like the, like it's just so horrifying. It feels almost impossible to resolve all that piece, all the pieces of that scene into a clean hole. Yeah. It's which actually, I think is what makes it, good horror yeah and i had to like slow down the film like and watch it a bunch of times just to like fully comprehend all the little shots that are happening in that and all the specific techniques he's doing because it comes at you so quickly it it almost feels like blood is being splattered on our face right um eventually the stalker finds her and he wants to kill her because he thinks that actress mima is a false mima and that this kind of idol mima that he has come up with in his brain is the real mima so he tries to kill Mima. (laughs) And he's doing that actually at the location where I think it's the location where the original rape scene was filmed. Yeah. And he 
is going to rape her before he murders her. He's not able to. She she escapes before he's able to. She takes a hammer and like hits him on the side of the head while he's above her. And then he kind of stumbles away. And it seems like he's died. And it's crazy because at a certain point, we see back from that booth that the directors and the writers were sitting in watching Mima during her performance during the fake rape scene. And we're now seeing it like from up there. And it almost feels like it's fake, just like the other scene was. It almost feels like we're the director or the writer and we're watching this scene of Mima kill her stalker. And even then we actually hear, we start to hear clapping after the killing and we don't know what it is at first. And then, so it's kind of weird. It feels like this stage performance. Oh, she's killed him. Clap, clap, clap. And then we cut into a shot of Mima back on the stage where she started in the beginning of the film as an idol. And her audience again is clapping for her. Yeah. And the audience is the film crew this time. I think the ending in the context of all this comes across as kind of surprising because it is, it ends on such a, what's the best way to say this? It ends on a beat that on the surface seems so upbeat. Yes. It it seems like, yeah, I have everything figured out. This has all been part of my growth process <laughs> and the music is even like kind of happy i remember it's like da, 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 and the credits have like this happy music yeah it, it's like you know what i'm over this growing pains are over nothing but clear sailing i think it's playing with that whole idea of a puzzle film like will was describing earlier because at the end we see um rumi her uh female manager that was impersonating her at a certain point and and seems to maybe be the mastermind behind all of this. We see her in a mental ward or something like that. Um, Mima's watching her and then Mima leaves and goes to drive her cute little car and is, um, seems like everything's going to be okay. Right. Like everything's been figured out, you know, Oh, it was roomy all along. Mima's fine. And then people look and see and go, Oh, Mima's here. She's way too famous to just be walking around here. Yeah. It's actually like, it's kind of this success in her career. Yeah. It's kind of this like happy ending of like, or like maybe not happy, but at least like conclusion. But then Mima looks into her rear view window in her car and says, no, I'm real. Or in some English translations, no, I'm the real Mima. And then the murderous smile. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's this thing of like, oh, you want to be happy. You're all concluded. And then ah, turn the ice pick. Snatches it away from you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is perfect. And again, I mean, that's probably the most clear, clear, clear button of a reflexive cinema film. Oh, let's uh, get the character to look right into the camera lens, you know, and talk to the audience. So are these your favorite kinds of movies? Is, is, is your Are your favorite films just... Movies about violence and and oppression and pointing a finger at the audience accusingly. Um, yeah, we're doing Salo for our next episode, right? <laughs> um, uh, no, I <laughs> I like a lot of different types of movies. My favorite film is actually My Neighbor Totoro, and I I, I love films that are happy too. <laughs> now that we've spent so long talking about fractured and traumatized identities let's let's quickly uh reassert that our guest today is filmmaker Paige smith Paige, is there <laughs> a good way for people to follow you for people to check out what you're about and what you do 
Sure. I mean, um, as Will and Devin mentioned before, I'm helping make this podcast. I'm the associate producer, which just means I'm doing some of the behind the scenes work. Uh, so I would first like to say, please follow us. Please follow Film Formally um, on Twitter and Facebook and keep listening. We really appreciate uh, everyone who listens. Um, and myself, as I said, I'm a filmmaker and media artist. So you can find me on Twitter and Facebook as well uh, and Instagram at Paige Smith Film. Have you got a website? Oh yeah, I have a website too, pagesmithfilm.com. You can see some of my old films there. Great. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I'm really excited. Before signing off, we had a live Q&A the other day, and I just want to thank those who participated in it. There was good feedback and discussion. So thank you to Ryan, Nathan, James, Natalie, Anthony, Rodney, Graham, and Anya. We're hoping to do more of those, so please keep an eye out for those and consider joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please rate it, review it, and subscribe to it and help other people discover it. If you want to come on the show or if you have an idea for a topic, you can get in touch by email via filmformally at gmail.com or you can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. We'll see you next Tuesday.